I've never been one to believe when people say that's just business. I don't believe that anything is just business. I believe that we are humans and we bring our whole selves to everything. And I think the business world is recognizing that more and more. Julie Sims had quite a career. Knowing what she wanted to do at age 10 and following that path and curiosity across the country to search for meaning in her work. She has worked in a small town newsroom, a staffing agency, and a nonprofit that allowed her to focus her talents on helping create a world free of illiteracy and gender inequality. Let's dive into this episode of Design Of, where we discuss the extraordinary things that happen around us every day and the people behind them. I'm your host, Justin Ahrens, and today's story begins in the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia. I grew up in a university town, Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, about an hour and a half from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was a very ideal place, I want to say, to grow up. It was a lot of my friends' parents were university professors. My father was a professor. And I have to say, I've been reflecting a lot on how lucky I was to grow up when I did how I did. I didn't have the pressures of social media that I think consume so many people now. And, you know, it seems like a really innocent time. So those were my formative years. And I was really interested in that's West Virginia, right? West Virginia University, West Virginia University. That is actually where I went to college and where my father taught. My father, my parents were just kind of hands off. In a lot of ways, they rarely told me what to do or even strongly suggested anything. But when I got to college, I got invited to be part of the honors program. And my dad said, I really want you to be in this program. I teach students in that program. The the classes are small. It's about 20 students. And I think you'll really love it. And so I did what he said. And it was a great education. Um, My husband went to Berkeley. So many of my friends here in the Bay Area have gone to amazing schools, but I feel like I was really lucky again because West Virginia University does not have one of a, a top academic reputation, but I got to know professors. My professors were really smart. I think I saw them as humans because my dad was a professor, so I knew the human side of things, and they really took an interest in me. So I was a journalism major. I knew I would be a journalism major from maybe the time I was 10. I never actually thought of any other career. I love to write. As a 10-year-old, like as a 10-year-old, like journalism, you know, that seems like, you know, advanced thought. Is that because your parents were professors or like, what did your dad teach specifically? He taught electrical engineering. And my dad was the type of person who on the weekend when we'd all be sitting at the breakfast table, he had this graph paper and he would be doing intense math problems just to relax. That was his way of unwinding. I did not inherit those genes. I like math, but I would never do complex trigonometry just to unwind. He's kind of a Renaissance man though. He really loved music. In West Virginia, he got into old time music. And my my dad's really one of my life heroes. He was someone who always encouraged me, always 
trusted me. You know, I'm very interested in careers. I spent 18 years working at a recruiting firm and I'm just fascinated by why we choose the careers we do, how we participate in the dynamics in our careers. And my dad was the one who gave me the key pieces of advice who kind of shape how I see things now. And if you, is it okay if I tell a little story about that that I was thinking about recently? Well, listen, uh, I would love it. And as a podcast, we uh, enjoy stories. In fact, my question was gonna be, share with me how your dad pushed you there. So I was a tour guide at the university. It was one of my jobs. And that consisted of either being on a bus if we had a lot of people visiting the university on a tour, and these were prospective students and their parents, or it would be a van that held about 10 people that I would drive around while, while telling them about the university. So we got an early snow. We had people who were supposed to come. The roads were as slick as can be. Morgantown's very hilly. We had a family coming and I knew that we should cancel the tour because the van had no front wheel drive. It didn't have four wheel drive. I was very nervous about it, but my boss at the time, Berna, said, no, you know, we have a family coming. You're gonna have to do it. And I absolutely knew it was a bad decision. And I kind of kind of made like, oh, well, Vern is making me do this terrible thing. So I'm cruising around with this family, trying to look calm and really just internally having a heart attack, a shaking. The van is just skewing all over the road. So as soon as I got to a safe spot, I pulled over and I said, you know what, guys, let's just make this a walking tour. It's a beautiful day to walk around. We can go to the mountain lair. So we're we're walking around. They were game. They were super nice people. And so we walked around. And then after a little while, I knew I couldn't drive them back. So I called and it turned out the head of the visitor center was out looking for me. They'd come across the van. <laughs> he had said to Verna, how could you have sent a student out driving in this blizzard? And so when I got through with this whole thing and I came back and I was feeling very, you know, just upset with Verna and the visitor center and telling my dad on the phone how they had mistreated me. My dad said, I don't think anyone was holding a gun to your head telling you you had to do this. And he said, Julie, you have better judgment than anyone. Mm. If you ever are being told to do something that you think isn't a good idea, it doesn't matter who's telling you, it could be a boss, it could be the president of the United States, you do not do it. You do what you think is right. And it was really interesting. It kind of stayed with me. I wasn't, I was expecting sympathy and instead I got a really good lesson, but do you remember how when that made moved, you feel at the moment? Like when your dad said that, were, were, did, did, were you just like, you're not listening to me, dad? Or, or did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I was full on. Yeah. How can you not see that I am the wronged party here? Right. Of course. But, you know, it really stayed with me and it's helped me so much. When I moved to the Bay Area right after college, my first professional job was at this little newspaper, the Half Moon Bay Review. And my boss at the time, the editor, in retrospect, was so young. I think he was 26. Wow. And I was 22. And I was covering the education beat and the county beat. 
And at the time I had been, I had had someone confide in me something about the assistant superintendent, he was leaving. And I told my boss, the editor, and he wanted me to do this story about dysfunction, about that it was this gentleman's fault that, you know, things weren't going well with the school district. And I really held my ground. And I am a pleaser, Justin. So, you know, that's the thing. I would typically want to please my boss, want to please the editor, but I could see that this guy was a human. I didn't believe my editor was right and that any of the dysfunction happening at the time was his fault. And I just said no. And my dad's words echoed in my head. I know what's right. I didn't want to ruin his life. He was going to a new job. I knew he had a family. And when I think about it, that was all my dad just saying, trust mm. your judgment. And it was a hard thing to do. I Yeah. Did you did you feel at the time as he was sharing with you what he wanted you to do that not only did you see that person as a human and we were just kind of pushing for making a story out of something that maybe wasn't a story worth sharing yeah i felt that it was you know that was another funny thing when i joined this newspaper i was replacing someone who was beloved so my first job, this person who I was replacing, people were mourning. I'd never seen anything like it. Like, you know, she made the best cookies. She <laughs> spoke English and Spanish, and she had just broken this great story about how farm workers on the coast were, were treated. I mean, she was amazing. Yeah. So stepping into those shoes was really difficult. I, I never felt like I was measuring up. Mm. And so particularly in that situation to say, yeah, I'm not going to do this story because I don't think it's a real story was a tough thing to do. And I, I'm proud that I did that. And I realized it was a tough thing to do, but I also realized just the privilege of having like a parent who gave me so much confidence in myself that at kind of an early age. That's super special. Did you get any blowback on that? It didn't ingratiate me to my <laughs> boss, but he was he was also just he was young. He was willing to just move on from it. And I think that's another lesson that I probably should have learned earlier. You can say no, you can have people be disappointed with you and most likely people will just move on. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. We, we we tend to get too caught up in our head, right? Especially it feels like the last few years when we were apart from being in personal space with people, I can tell you, at least for me personally, some of my relationship situations, I'm just like, what is really going on? Well, let's go from your first job at that uh, paper, right? So how long were you there? There about a year. Okay. All right. Uh, and so you moved on. Like, What did you do between that and joining Robert Half where I met you? So this is a funny story. So I got the job at the Half Moon Bay Review and I moved to this little town, Pacifica, to be very close to Half Moon Bay. And there was a road that connected Pacifica to Half Moon Bay called Devil's Slide. 
the day after I moved, Devil's Slide went out. So my commute became, instead of this 15 minute commute, it became an hour 15. And the upside of that though was that the state senator representing parts of San Francisco and the county was very involved. He was the head of the state transportation committee and he was down there trying to help the community figure it out, figure out what to do about this situation. I met him, we liked each other, I interviewed him, we got to know each other and I eventually went to work for him. And he was an independent, he was a really fascinating person very service oriented for his constituents, very grumpy, not known for being the easiest, nicest person, but definitely like was, was he always like pre grumpy or is he or is he kind of eory or like he would so what he was known for, he had an amazing vocabulary. He was a lawyer and he would use a lot of kind of amazing vocabulary to insult people when they deserved it often, like in fairness. Everyone, that seems fascinating. Do you remember any of it? Well, okay, instead of call it, calling someone a coward, you could call them pusillanimous. Uh, so a pusillanimous toady was a term that he wouldn't um, hesitate to use. I loved it because I love words. I thought it was all just great. And I loved I loved writing statements using that language. It was fun. But, you know, this thing that my dad taught me really came into play because he, you know, could have a little bit of a temper. So he would get into a bad state. He'd read an article that a reporter had written that he didn't like. And he would say, you tell so-and-so that I am never going to talk to him or take his call again. And I'd say, okay, Senator, but I wouldn't. And sure enough, a lot of times when he would call later, He'd say, did you talk to Joe? And I said, no, I, I haven't had an opportunity yet. And he'd say, just forget about it. So kind of letting him simmer down when he yeah. was oh, in that's place. Great. That's great. Well, it's really interesting. So far in your career path, so you have a really interesting connection to to people and, and what they do, right? So from the reporting journalism standpoint, right? It's all about finding those stories and how people interact and what motivates them. And then now that then you go to politics, right? Where you still use your journalism to help provide clarity, influence advocacy or issues or, or ideas, right? So what was next? So the senator I worked for was term limited out. And at the time my father was pretty sick. He had leukemia. Mm -hmm. And I was at a crossroads and had to figure out what to do. So I wanted to be there for my dad, who was going to have a bone marrow transplant in Seattle. And I was just trying to collect unemployment. And so I was doing interviews really with the purpose of collecting unemployment so I could see my dad through his illness. And I did an interview for a company called Robert Half. They were hiring a writer and they said, we want to hire you. And I said, oh, I kind of need to take the next few months off because my dad's in this situation. And they said, we'll wait, which was How great is that? incredible to me. <laughs> yeah. 
And it gave me such comfort actually being with my dad and knowing that I had a job to return to. Robert Half is a really interesting company because it's a recruiting firm, so they're really good at hiring and they're really good at retaining great people. Mm. And when we saw someone who had talent, we were the kind of company that would just often create a position for them. And, you know, that's a real luxury. I don't have that now in my nonprofit life, but I really look back on that and appreciate it. So I started writing and then Robert Hack was getting ready to launch their arm that would place design professionals. And I got tapped to oversee that group and the PR and marketing, well, mainly the PR for that. And that is how I got involved in design. And I will tell you, Robert Half was an organization that was founded on placing accounting professionals in jobs. And as much as I love accounting professionals, those were not my people. I did not feel the affinity that I felt when I transitioned to work for the creative group, which was the design arm. And I just loved it. I was so in awe of the designers I met and I really loved the conversations and I loved thinking about design and design thinking. There we go. What do, you, just, what, do you, what do you think was the difference? And again, not disparaging the accounting industry, right? Cause I have an accountant, I love my accountant. Was it the fact that, you know, just in the, the perspective the, the creative, you know, field needs to have and pursues or, or what was it for you? I really appreciated the creativity. And when you talk to a designer, they bring their whole selves to every conversation and to their work. And that really struck me. I could see the passion that everybody had for what they were doing. And it seemed holistic. And you know, I've never been one to believe when people say that's just business. I don't believe that anything is just business. I believe that we are humans and we bring our whole selves to everything. And I think the business world is recognizing that more and more. But at the time it was kind of like, you can park your personal life here and then we'll talk about business. And designers just naturally knew that, you know, they're whole people, we bring everything that happens to us to every project that we have or everything that we know about and i really appreciated that and also designers are just really nice people i mean i would approach people working for this company and say i'd love to interview you for our online magazine i had started this online magazine it was called an e-zine which tells you how updated it was <laughs> And people would generously give me their time and tell me their stories. And the stories were fascinating. So I just grew to really love that world. And I formed so many really inspirational relationships that I've had to this day. That's, that's fantastic. What I really been enjoying is just the transformation that your experiences are having every new you know, chapter that you start. So you are at Robert Half for pretty long time. 18 years. Yeah. yeah. So what made you finally shift? It built in me for a while. I was very conflicted. I loved Robert Half. 
I loved the people I work with. They were my other family and still are actually, but I was growing in a different direction. I was less interested in doing all of the things that I did at Robert Half. I knew that I was being groomed for an even bigger leadership role. And I recognized that I did not want that role. Hmm. And it wasn't because I didn't want to be a leader. It was because I, I could feel myself moving in a different direction. I had been working for a number of nonprofits as a board member, was chair of the board in San Francisco of Dress for Success. I was on the advisory board in Stellum of the Daily City Youth Health Center, which supports underserved teen populations with mental and physical health care. And I started thinking about what would it look like if my whole career were, this wasn't a side thing, but I was actually able to devote all of my professional time to this and these types of causes that matter a lot to me. And I applied for a job at Room to Read and funny story, I'd met someone at a party who had tried to recruit me to volunteer at Room to Read 10 years before weird person that I am, I saved her business card. And then I saw that they were hiring a head of marketing and communications. And when I saw that, I called her and she was lovely enough to take my call. She did not remember me or the party at all. And, but she talked to me about it. She got me motivated and inspired. And I liked what she told me and I applied and I got that job. And I will tell you, I didn't get it right off the bat. I um, I applied, heard nothing, and then saw that it was posted, I don't know, five or six months later. And so I did what I always advise the people I was coaching at Dress for Success to do, and that is to call, just call people. So I looked up on LinkedIn, the head, the person who was hiring, the chief development and communications officer, and I called her. I called her after normal working hours, which is what I advise people to do because that's when the executive is most apt to pick up the phone. She did pick up the phone. We started talking and the rest is history. She said to me later that she never answers her own phones and it was just kismet that she did that day. And so it was lucky, but I always tell people, take that extra step, try not to feel self-conscious or embarrassed about it. You know, even if they've said no calls, please, the truth is they don't know what you've seen or <laughs> what is happening and, it, and make it a really good conversation. Don't say, did you get my resume? but talk about what you have to offer and really engage the person. I, love I really appreciate people who call me yeah. when I'm hiring and just exhibit some chutzpah. Well, I love, first of all, I love the Robert Half, you know, experience coming into that. So that's brilliant. And I agree. It's interesting. It feels like today, especially younger generation, and I don't like umbrella generalizations, but it feels like picking up the phone is like the fifth on the list of options. And I'm just like, let's just, just call somebody, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be okay. Why don't we give that a shot? I feel very old every time I call someone because <laughs> with this 
generation, it's such a strange thing to do, especially if you don't give them notice. So now I try anytime I call anyone to send a text first, with the exception of my mother. But yeah, it is it is amazing how far you can get when you actually talk to people. Yeah, I agree. Well, you said something I, I, I really find interesting and I would love for you to share at the level that you're comfortable with. So I definitely want to talk about Room to Read, what it's about and what, what you've done there. But tell me a little bit more about that space in between. You were just sharing that you, know, you had potentially a great opportunity at Robert Half. going to be a leader or grooming to the next level. And something shifted to the point where you went into more of a mission-driven, cause-related business. What was going on with you? Justin, it's such a good question. It is so hard to leave a good situation. And it just speaks to the difficulty of change. Mm. It's easier to leave a bad situation, although I would argue many people don't leave bad situations. But when you have a good situation and people you really love, it's very difficult to leave. And I will tell you the one regret I had when I finally did leave Robert Half was not leaving sooner. Hmm. And that's because my brain just lit up and learning new things, thinking about issues on a deep level that I hadn't thought about or contemplated before. I think it was so rejuvenating. And again, I had a wonderful ride at Robert Half. I was so fortunate to have an amazing boss and work for a company that just put leadership first. Mm. But that makes it really hard to leave. And I could have stayed there and probably have been a careerist, but leaving was so good for me. And that's that's advice that I think young people don't need. They jump around more. They do more things. I am loyal to a fault with everything, including careers. But people, careers, relationships, most of my friends I've had since I was in junior high. So there's something really important about when you're not feeling inspired, recognizing that. And taking action right on especially in marketing i think you have that beginner's mind initially gives you so much power to create change but once you're indoctrinated in a company it may be harder depending on the organization to be as creative as you once were i mean i think that's why people use agencies yeah and, and we like people that use agencies, by the way. So yes, agencies. Um, well, what attract, was there something specific around the nonprofit world? Was it, was it, because you, you talked about you're on a lot of boards. So I feel internally, there's obviously some mission driven desire inside you. Can you um, talk more about that? I have had a lot of privilege in my life. And I think that the more privilege you have, the more you owe to the world. And so I, I really did feel like I owed the world a lot. And um, the causes that I really cared about, literacy and reading were a big 
part of my life. I am an avid reader. I cannot imagine the world without books. When I was young, I was I was often pretty lonely. We lived way out in the woods and books were such solace for me. And so I did some volunteering at 826 Valencia, which is a literacy organization. They tutor kids after school. And then I I also dress for success, which sounds like it's kind of telling you what you should wear to an interview, which is how they started, but it's really career coaching and helping women um, do all of the things they need to do to find a career that supports them. And um, so those were two causes I care about and what's fascinating about Room to Read and how it aligned perfectly with my interest is Room to Read focuses on literacy and gender equality. So the organization's mission is to create a world free of illiteracy and gender inequality. And it's something I aligned with so completely. It still seems like magic to me that I was able to find something like that. Sounds beyond perfect. So you call the executive and she hires you. Yes, and I don't want to minimize how complicated that was. It was actually, Room to Read has a fairly extensive hiring process. So I had to do a presentation and meet with lots of people. And in some ways, I think it has been Room to Read secret sauce. They hire exceptional people. I think the people I work with are truly extraordinary. And I think I kind of came in with this idea that nonprofits are great, but, you know, it's not like a real company. I, I was very worried that people would be inefficient, that I'd be frustrated by a lack of progressiveness. I had these really strange stereotypes that I think a lot of people hold. And so when I got there, Room to Read was founded by someone who had been an executive at Microsoft. And I found that Room to Read was as progressive, as buttoned up, as business-minded as they come. So that was a happy surprise for me. Wow, that's great. So what was your role at Room to Read? So I started as a senior director of marketing and PR. I really was overseeing marketing and PR. And I will say it was a step down for me at the time. I left Robert Happ as the vice president of strategic communications. I'm never one to be too um, interested in titles, but there was a part of me that felt a little funny about it. And, you know, that's just ego. Ego is something I think we all have to contend with. But I went for the job and, and I'm really glad I did. I eventually got promoted to vice president. And, you know, it's been such a learning journey for me. And every organization has its culture. And that's one thing I'm really fascinated by what creates an organization's culture, what plays into that, and how it affects individual employees. And one thing that's really interesting about Room to Read is the senior executive team when I joined was all women or for a good portion of when I joined. And being female-led, women-led, it was just fascinating to have a front row seat 
at that table and see how the conversations are and how the tone of things are sometimes different from what I was accustomed to at Robert Half. That sounds like an extraordinary opportunity, but also an experience to be a part of that. It has been a gift. You know, the thing about Room to Read is we work across many countries. And so I had always overseen marketing and communications across Europe and Australia, but it was really interesting to oversee in countries that we're in, like Vietnam and Cambodia and India and Sri Lanka and Nepal. Working with leaders in those parts of the world has been just a privilege. Mm. And visiting some parts of the world that I had never visited before has been really interesting. And, you know, Room to Read focuses on getting children so that they can read before they're in third grade, right? So we provide books in local languages. We we find people in those countries who are capable of creating children's books, illustrators and writers, and we teach them how to do it. And then we publish the books in local languages and distribute them through the local school systems. And then we were finding the children were learning to read, but the girls were dropping out kind of when they'd hit that junior high age. And oftentimes this was because of societal pressure, pressure to drop out and marry early, pressure to go work, pressure to take care of siblings. And so we started a girls' education program that keeps those girls in school, providing them with mentorship and life skills lessons from the time they're in junior high to the time they graduate. And it has a very high success rate. But meeting these girls, meeting these children is just something that has been so formative to me and so meaningful in my life. That's fantastic. You know, when we were doing some work with several nonprofits across Eastern Africa, one of the statistics that is that is fairly solid in developing parts of the world is the reality that if you want to reduce poverty, the key to a lot of that is making sure young girls have the chance to go through a complete experience from education from, you know, primary school all the way through high school. I I love that you guys are doing that and making an impact because it's, it's just, it's generational impact. Right. So that's, that's, that's awesome. Bravo. I love that you said that, Justin, because it is generational impact. So this latest project I've been working on is called She Creates Change, where we actually share the stories of six participants in our girls' education. Who should I be in this world? No one had ever asked me such a question. When I was a child, I learned nothing is freer than a bird. But when I grew up, I learned not all birds are free. And these participants are amazing young women who are using the skills they learned in our program to do really exceptional things in their communities. And I should stop myself because they're amazing young women. They're courageous young women, but they are like so many young women 
a lot of women, if you get these skills, girls, you can do amazing things. So one of my favorite stories is Dumini from Sri Lanka, and she's 14. Her family was facing very difficult economic times. Sri Lanka has been hit hard by so many things, including inflation. And Dumini was going to have to move away from her family and become a servant and drop out of school and using her life skills, she came up with a plan to help her family create a garden. Dumini actually created the irrigation system and the garden, and she was able to help her family create food on the table, income, you know, they sell some of their excess produce and also, you know, just create a better life for herself. But she wants to be an agricultural engineer helping her whole community deal with climate change and its impact on agriculture. And I'm pretty sure she's gonna do that. She's an amazing young woman. Awesome. She created her own little microfinance idea and created uh, opportunity that is unbelievably inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. And as you continue to, you know, search and explore your own career, your own path, your design of what's next, what is next? That is what I've been thinking a lot about. And one thing that I read a couple of years ago, but it really stood out to me, it's kind of, as you get older, you want to choose a career that really rewards wisdom versus just pure energy. And it really resonated because I feel like I've acquired wisdom that I just love to share with people. I really enjoy when I look at my job, coaching the people on staff. I think they are having a lot of challenges that I didn't have. I think the whole hybrid and remote work situation is great for a lot of people, myself included. But if you're just starting your career, I think it's really hard to learn by example and observation. And so I've been thinking about what that means for me. And I'd like to to really turn toward using my experience in the recruiting world and my experience at Room to Read, building a team to coach others and to really figure out how I can help create change by supporting individuals. I've worked with a couple of coaches in my career who have been so instrumental in helping guide me to where I want to go. And and I'd like to do that for other people. That sounds like uh, a perfect <laughs> next step for you, Julie. So that's amazing. Well, let's talk about maybe a couple of the things that really come to the surface when you're thinking about, you know, working with uh, others. And so, you know, we can pick a variety of things. So, you know, when you think about, you know, like strengths and weaknesses, right? So if you're going to work with someone, you know, what are some things that you believe in or where would you approach that? You know, it's interesting. I do not like this whole question that comes up sometimes in interviews. What are your strengths and weaknesses? Because I think they're essentially the same thing. That's what I've seen in my career. We love binaries and I get it. It's easy to understand and it's easy to convey. But when I've looked at my whole life 
and the people I've coached, we have traits. So in some instances and used in some ways, those traits are strengths and in some ways they're weaknesses. And so it's more about harnessing your traits and learning to use them in ways that serve you, serve your organization, serve your purpose. But I, I think the biggest gift you can give someone is talk to them about their strengths. Um, so when I do a performance review, it's what I like to start out with. People really want to be seen. And you, as a manager, have the ability to give them that gift that I see you, and here's what I see in you that maybe on some level you know, maybe you don't know, but I want you to know what I see in you. And I think it's a gift you can give someone, and I think it's something we don't do enough. I think we focus on the negative. I don't think the performance review is the time or place to hit someone with any kind of criticism. I think you should do that in the moment. And I think this is knowledge that we all know, but it's easy just to squirrel something away and then come out with it. And people, you know, often feel gut punched by that. So I try to give, you know, any kind of critique in the moment is soon as possible with the example and i really like to use time to tell people about their extraordinary qualities i think that's uh a fascinating way to look at it especially at times and i'm not sure if this is where you were kind of leaning in when originally talking about strengths i think when you're talking about your career i look at some of the things that i feel i'm strongest in or others that i uh, know have these great skills or whatever else those in uh in fact are also at times their biggest weakness or crutch right is that kind of what you're leaning towards exactly so we're talking about me like one of my strengths is i'm loyal i'm not going to abandon you or any organization i'm going to you know always be supportive that loyal friend it also can become a fault there are times when I've been loyal when I shouldn't have been loyal, where I probably just should have jumped ship. And, you know, that plays into business relationships too, right? So again, it's a strength, it's a weakness, it's a trait. I am a loyal person, but it can go either way. So kind of learning, one learning for me has been how to turn off that loyalty, that voice that's saying you have to be loyal above all things when a relationship is isn't working for you or your organization. That's really great. Incredible, isn't it? When we think about the uh, the lifespan of our career, right? So I, I, there's a couple of things you said that I really resonate with, which is I want to I want to be in a space where my wisdom can be used, shared, and also at the same time be open to learning new things and expanding that. Like that's that seems super exciting to me. And I totally resonate that. And also just kind of going back a little bit, when you were talking about, you know, either younger professionals or new professionals coming out of school. So I have four kids, you know, um, my, they had a, a lot of COVID schooling and, you know, it's impacted them. Uh, I can see it. There's probably still parts of it that haven't come out. So for example, my one son, you know, he was in high school during the, the heaviest part of it. And then I think even his first semester or two at college was you know, not normal, quote unquote. Yeah. So he's pumped to go to an office, right? Because he, 
he doesn't want to work remote and he will probably eventually, you know, as we, like, like you said, in our age of our career, I like having the flexibility. So, you know, kind of digging into that a little bit, if you were to coach someone that was younger, you know, what are some of the, the concerns or advice you would give them about, you know, you know, having those cultural connections in a, in a world that right now, it depends on where you're at. It's a great question. It's funny. I was just talking to my niece this morning about careers. And I think the biggest piece of advice I have is keep that human connection. I was just telling her, just just network with people. It sounds really old fashioned, but I was saying that informational interview is such a tool in your arsenal. So, you know, just find someone who has the career you would like and say, hey, can I talk to you about this? Can I get 20 minutes of your time to ask a few questions and come with those questions and thank them for their time. But most people want to help you. And, and I also said, you know, when I've done these informational interviews, if I'm really impressed with someone, I will typically reach out to my network and say, hey, I know someone who is looking and seems really like she has a lot to offer. And so you come to mind for people, but it's that human connection. I had one employee of mine ask me a year or two ago, she said, Julie, how do you have all these friends? Like, and she, she is the most wonderful employee. And it really surprised me, but I realized one, she doesn't have the opportunities that I have. Most of my friends, my true besties, a good portion of them came from work. And because we were side by side in an office, seeing each other every day, we became pretty close. And if you don't have that, it's harder to become closer. It's, it's not impossible, but it is harder and you have to make time. The New York Times had some article about like the conditions it takes to become good friends. And so they tend to flourish when we're in college because it's spending X amount of hours together going through difficult things. So like when you're in college and away from home for the first time, that can be difficult. And when you think about it now, that's how I made a lot of my friends. We were going through difficulties of having our first jobs or, you know, growing a company and we saw each other every day. So creating those conditions in your life is what I would highly recommend, whether it's with your volleyball team or a club or, you know, figuring out a way to connect with other humans regularly and often. I think it's the most important thing in life. I, I worry so much about loneliness because it seems to be an epidemic and the Surgeon General just came out and said, listen, it's worse than smoking. And there are a lot of lonely people in the world. There are a lot of people with a lot of social media connections, online connections who don't have real connections. And so it's how we're wired, we're pack animals. Yeah, we I, I couldn't agree more. It just feels there's gonna be ways that we're gonna continue to come back together. I'm not saying it's gonna work, you know, five days a week, but I can see us all interacting more or having, continue to have more connections. At least I hope they do, because I'm a people person and I'm energized by that room. I'm aligned with you.
Well, Julie, I, I've taken so much of your time. You've shared some just really brilliant wisdom. Thank you again. Dustin, thank you. It's delightful to talk to you and to see you again. Thank you, Julie, for sharing your thoughts about career, leadership, and standing up for what you believe in. I also want to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack. For more on Sleeping At Last music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To Design of Audio Engineer Steve Wick, who loved this episode so much and made him think of his favorite nugget of wisdom. Yep. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell others about our show on your social of choice and stay tuned for more Design Of coming soon. Please follow us on Twitter at Design Of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.